and invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at verses 10, looking at verses 10 through 13 today. Philippians 4, 10 through 13. I thought I would start with something funny today. That was it. No, I'm just kidding. Um, there was a pastor who decided he wanted to skip church one Sunday. He didn't tell anybody, and he decided to skip church and go play golf. And in the very first hole, he tees up on that very first hole, and he gets a hole in one. The angels look at the Lord, and the angels say to the Lord, why do you allow that to happen? And the Lord responded, who's he going to tell? That doesn't relate to the sermon I just wanted to share. I could find a way to relate, and most pastors can try to... I'm not even going to try, though. Uh, Several years ago, when I was in seminary, I was required to watch a video called Affluenza. Affluenza. Think about affluent with uh, at the end, or influenza, but instead affluenza. It's the first time I really started thinking about this idea of being, you know, an affluent world, an affluent culture. And I'm going to share some stats from that. I know they're old. They're 25 or so years old. So I, I think it's only gotten worse since then. Uh, but first, I want to say one thing I really like about our evangelical friends' history is the idea of simplicity, the idea of simplicity. And simplicity applies to everything. Some of you might be thinking, or some of us might be thinking, no, we only apply it to money. I'm not talking about only money. What about time? What about commitment levels? If I commit to one thing, that means I'm not committing to another thing. Sometimes we just think, as Christians, we're just called to make ourselves busy, make ourselves busy for the Lord. And uh, sometimes the Lord has callings on our life. I actually think that every single one of us, uh, depending on our health, our health at the time and our capabilities and our work schedule, we are all called to serve in a ministry capacity as a lay person, a volunteer, or maybe part-time, full-time. We're all called to serve the Lord in various ways, but we're not called to be constantly busy, constantly on the go. Simplicity of life. But also simplicity of possessions and and things like that. Simplicity. I like the idea of simplicity. Something I I keep trying to impress upon my kids and family. Something comes in, that means something else has to go out of the house. We don't have room. We had a great giveaway last week. And as soon as we came in, Mercedes was saying, can I take this home? And I'm like, no. Let me pray about that. No. Um, Didn't need to pray about that. I knew it was no. I still lost the battle. But it was no. It was no. Simplicity. I love the friend's idea of simplicity. I think it's a biblical idea because we think gluttony only, gluttony, gluttony, we think it applies to food. It does apply to food, but it's not only food. Gluttony means excess. What does Paul say at the end of 1 Timothy? Godliness with contentment is great gain. So I watched this documentary called Affluenza. You can find it online still. Uh, they define they defined affluenza as the bloated, sluggish, and unfulfilled feeling that results from efforts to keep up with the Joneses. We ever experienced that, the bloated, sluggish, unfulfilled feeling that results from efforts to keep up with the Joneses. You may not feel that now, but I'm sure you felt that before. Let's look at some startling statistics that they, were share, that they shared. 
The average North American consumes five times more than a Mexican, 10 times more than a Chinese person, and 30 times more than a person from India. The gap between rich and poor Americans is now the widest of any industrial nation. One-fifth of the world's population. Now, even if you have problems with the first two, yeah, it's hard to have problems with this third one. One-fifth of the world's population lives in dire poverty, slowly dying of hunger and disease. Millions of others desperately need more material goods. Yet were they to consume as Americans do, the result would be an environmental disaster. Let me say right now at the outset, I'm a proud American. I think it's good to be proud, patriotic American. But I recognize most of the world does not live as we do. Americans throw away 7 million cars a year, 2 million plastic bottles every hour, enough aluminum cans annually to make 6,000 DC-10 airliners. I don't think that's gotten any better. 11% of teenagers own their own credit cards and 40% use their parents' cards. I know that's gotten worse. Americans have more than $1 billion in credit card, uh, no, 1 billion credit cards. Fewer than one-third of all Americans pay off their credit card balances each month. And the average cardholder is $2,700 in debt and paying 16% interest. I believe that's uh, definitely gone way up since then. Most Americans declared, uh, more Americans declared bankruptcy in 1996 than graduated from college. Arguments about money play a major role in 90% of divorce cases. And that's totally true. Money is one of the top two leading causes of divorce. And most Americans live on debt and high debt. And uh, we, the reason I share those as we start, because Paul's going to address contentment in this passage. We're getting to a passage where Paul is talking about contentment. Can we be content? Can we live simply? Can we be content? I believe that Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 14 addresses some of our problems. And I know that those statistics are simply trends. And many people, many of you, and many of us are struggling to make ends meet without living in affluence. Many of us might be struggling to make ends meet while living simply, living, practicing simplicity. If that was the case, God bless you and my prayers are with you. Still, Paul's attitude in Philippians 4, 10 through 14 will help all of us. Paul's attitude in this passage, Philippians 4, 10 through 14, will help all of us. We see proper gratitude in a proper attitude for living. Proper gratitude in a proper attitude for living. We'll all see that Paul was grateful for God's provisions, grateful for God's provisions, but also willing to live on little as much as possible. He's willing to live on less. Paul knew that with God's help, he would do without. And with God's help, he could do without. As we look at this passage, I hope we can all take that lesson from verse 14, that with God's help, we can do without. I hope we can all recognize that with God's help, we can live in any and all circumstances. My theme today is learn to be content. Learn to be content. Let's look at Philippians 4, 10 through 14. Paul writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, this is the word of the Lord. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. 
You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. They shared with him. He's learned contentment. He can do that. He can do all things through Christ who strengthens him. That all things, by the way, we're going to come back to this. Uh, it's, it's about living on less, living on little, living in prison. It's about, it's about sacrificing. It's not about scoring touchdowns for Jesus. So first notice that Paul is content. We see that in verses 10 through 12 in verse 14. In verse 10, he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you didn't have the opportunity. Paul rejoiced that their concern for him has been restored. Paul says that they never lost concern for him. However, for some time they were not able to help him out. Now they are. Are we rejoicing when others have concerns for us? Paul modeled thanks and gratitude in this verse and later in verse 14. In verse 14, Paul will say that they shared in his troubles. In his troubles, they helped him out. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 26, the Bible says that as a church, if one part suffers, we all suffer together. I believe as a church, holistically, we do this pretty well. It's one of our strengths. But only you can evaluate how you do with that. I've watched as Bethel friends, members, and attendees have come together to help provide meals or help or medical care or support for people in need. If one part suffers, we all suffer together. If one part rejoices, we all rejoice together. We care. We want to care. We want to love each other. And then as we are supported, we're thankful. We're thankful. We're grateful, as I'm sure many of you are. Now, the Philippians helped Paul, but let me tell you, and I know I've repeated this over the years, for, for those of you that are here almost every Sunday, you've heard this a lot. Let's, let's look at Paul's situation in the church at Philippi. They faced persecution. The church at Philippi has faced persecution. The apostle Paul has faced persecution, and he is currently living in a Roman dungeon-type prison chained by a guard. Paul wrote this around AD 61, so just less than 31 years after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. He's in prison, likely in house arrest in Rome. We can see that in Acts 28, verses 14 through 31. This was likely his first imprisonment. He will be in prison later in a Roman dungeon-type prison. We see that in 2 Timothy as well, uh, but not yet. So he's not, I need to correct something I just said. He, he may not be in a dungeon-type prison now. He might be house arrest, but we do know that he is shackled. He's shackled to a guard. Either way, he has guards around him all the time, and he's in a type of prison. So even though the Philippians had faced persecution, they still were willing to reach out to help Paul. And, and here's Paul writing with great gratitude. He's not saying sin more. He's not saying 
write letters, get me out of this situation. He's writing with great gratitude. Now notice verse 11. We see that Paul is content in all circumstances. Paul says it just like that too. Paul says that he has learned to be content. This makes it sound like this has not come easy. Through the school of hard knocks and through struggles, he has learned to be content. Have we learned that lesson too? God is continuously working on me with that and many other things. Are we really content in all circumstances when we use credit and other means to purchase things that we don't need? Or an example of one that might sting a little bit more, but this is between you and the Lord. He's talking to somebody recently, not from our church, so don't start thinking, oh, I wonder who this was. Not from our church, not even from around here. Live in Dayton. And they said, well, I have the money. Might as well just use it. And I said, well, is it your money? Everything we have, every penny we have belongs to the Lord. It was the Lord before. It's the Lord's after. It's always the Lord's. Our time belongs to the Lord. Everything we have belongs to the Lord. Thank you, Don. I appreciate your <laughs> responses. There was a woman whose husband died. This is a humorous example. And she inherited $20,000 after he died. People knew that she had inherited this money. And so they were surprised when she had money issues. And she was talking to her friend about some money issues. And, and her friend said to her, didn't you just inherit $20,000? What, what's going on? And she said, well, I spent $5,000 on the funeral expenses. And I spent $15,000 on the stone. And they, and they said, she said, what, what, what? Stone cost $15,000. And she said, this stone. And showed the three-carat diamond ring that she bought with the inherited money. And that's just a humorous example. Everything we have belongs to the Lord. Now, as we look at verse 13, we can see why Paul was content. Why was Paul content? Notice, he's content because the Lord gives him strength. Verse 13, he's content because the Lord gives him strength. Some call verse 13 the Superman passage. I saw Dr. Ben Weatherington from Asbury Theological Seminary say that a few years ago. I'll never forget the Superman passage because we think we can just, you know, use this to do superhuman things for anything we want to do. I can do... Philippians 4, 13, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. I once heard that Tim Tebow would put that, and I have a lot of respect for Tim Tebow, but he would put that under his, uh, his eye, whatever you call that, in his sports games. And we think, I can score touchdowns for Jesus who gives me strength. But it's not really about scoring touchdowns. That takes it out of its context. And remember, a text without a context is a pretext for whatever you want it to mean. We can take any verse out of context and make it mean what, whatever we want it to mean. But if you look at Philippians 4, 10 through 13, what is the context? Paul's writing under persecution to a persecuted church. And he's writing about being content on less. But he can do that through Christ who gives him strength. Christians right now in war-torn areas like Israel, like Ukraine, can live the Christian life without giving up on Jesus, without turning their back on Jesus. They can do that through Christ who gives them strength. 
Christians in North Korea. There's like 50,000 Christians in North Korea. They can live the Christian life through Jesus who gives them strength. Christians in China, where Bibles are scarce and persecution is rampant, can live the Christian life through Christ who gives them strength. Christians in Iran can live the Christian life through Christ who gives them strength. Christians in America going through trials, tribulations, struggles. Maybe it's persecution. Maybe it's sickness. Maybe it's their caregiver. Maybe it's illness. Maybe it's addiction. Maybe it's counseling needs. Maybe it's monetary needs. They can live the Christian life to Christ who gives them strength. The Colorado cake baker who was taken to court, even the Supreme Court, once and again for refusing to bake a cake for a same-sex couple can maintain the Christian faith and the Christian witness through Christ who gives them strength. The florist in Washington State who was taken to court as well for refusing to design a flower arrangement for a um, same-sex wedding can live the Christian life through Christ who gives her strength. And you can apply that the same way for all of us. God gives us strength, but he's not giving us strength for whatever we want. No, God gives us strength for what we need. Of course, it's easy for us to get confused with wants versus needs, right? The average American spends one year of their lives watching TV commercials. Now, since this came out, it's probably a little less because I prefer to record things and fast forward through commercials. But sometimes if it's on demand, they make you watch the commercials. Children are the fastest growing segment of the consumer market. In 1995, so we guarantee this has gotten worse, companies spent $1 billion marketing their products to young people. I was a McDonald's shift manager through college, and I did my five years of tribulation period there. And I know McDonald's did it right. They marketed to children. The Happy Meal, they marketed to children. Each year, advertisers spend millions of dollars trying to convince people to buy products. Most people don't know that advertising is not free to the buyers of products. This business expense is added to the cost of the product so that we pay more at the store. In fact, you're paying for products you don't buy. There are other less obvious ways we pay for advertising. Ads plan our feelings of envy and anxiety. Ads often suggest that a person could be more successful, attractive, even lovable if they use brand X. And people, both young and old, need tools to separate the message from the advertiser's intention to make a sale. I recently heard someone say that television is not there for the shows, but for the commercials. And we all can experience Super Bowl time period, right? And all the companies spend on commercials. People must sell and make money. I understand that. I'm not trying to be critical of that. I'm just trying to say Christians need discernment about wants versus needs and being content. We need discernment about being content. So let me get back to the passage at hand. Paul says that Christ gives him strength. Christ gives him strength to do without. What about us? As we recognize wants versus needs, can we also rely on Christ to give us strength to do without? Can we rely on God's strength? We're not living the Christian life alone. 
are we? We're living the Christ, the Christian life, connected to our Lord and Savior, Jesus. There was a couple who had a cat. The woman loved the cat. The husband hated the cat. Typical. The cat would leave its hair all over the place, and it drove the husband absolutely insane. One day, the wife went on a vacation and asked her husband to take care of the cat for her until she returned. Well, he didn't like the cat when the wife was home, so he certainly didn't like the cat when the wife was gone. He took the cat to the local dock, and he found a boat. He put the cat onto the boat so he'd never have to see that cat again. The wife came home and, of course, wondered where her cat was. Her husband told her that the cat had gone and that he didn't know where the cat was. That is, of course, uh, this, of course, was the truth. The cat went on the boat. He does not know where the cat was anymore. He happily helped his wife look for the cat for a few weeks. He, uh, she was distraught. Her husband said, honey, I love you so much because she thought he was helping find the cat. Her husband said, I love you so much. He said to his wife, the cat's worth like $100. But because I love you so much, I'm going to put an ad in the newspaper. I'll offer $5,000 to anybody who finds our cat. His wife was filled with appreciation. Oh, darling, the fact that you would put up that much money for a cat because of your love for me is wonderful. Now I know how much you love and appreciate me. The husband put the ad in the newspaper. One of his friends saw the ad. He came to the husband and said, I saw your ad. You're going to pay somebody $5,000 just to find a cat? The husband replied, you have to understand. When you know what I know, no amount of investment is too much. When you know what I know, about your eternal future, when you know what I know about your welcoming committee, we're going to heaven with the Lord in heaven. We're on our way to heaven, right? And we know what the word of God tells us. We know what the word of God tells us. And we try to pursue understanding and knowing what Jesus knows about his heavenly kingdom, what he reveals to us. No amount of investment in the Lord's kingdom is too much. Sinners don't know. This comes from Tony Evans. Sinners don't know what I know. In other words, what the Lord knows. Sinners don't know what he knows. They think that this life holds all there is. They don't know that God takes into account what you do in time for eternity. God takes into account what we do in time for his eternity. If we are a Christian, if you are a Christian, and if you know God knows no amount of investment for heaven should be too much. What you do in time will determine what you look like in glory. So remember that Paul wrote Philippians 4.13 under persecution to a persecuted church in context dealing with contentment. And why can we be content? Because we know what the word of God declares about our future hope in heaven. We know also what the word of God declares about our relationship with Jesus right now. We have a status and a place in God's kingdom now. You don't have to wait till heaven to get there. We have it today. How can you be encouraged today? 
1996 Olympics, Carrie Strug, the Olympic gymnast, had the weight of the Olympic gold medal for her team on her shoulders. All she had to do was have a successful vault and the United States would get the gold. There was one problem. When she did her first vault, she sprained her ankle and she could barely walk. She fell. She did not get the score she needed for the U.S. team to win. As she sat there on the mat with tears falling down her face, she cried for two reasons. One, she was in pain. She was in pain. And two, there is no way she could make the score to win the victory in this situation. But she had another jump. She had another vault. She got up. She felt like giving up. But her coach stood on the sidelines and said, you can do it, Carrie. You can do it, Carrie. I believe in you. You can do it. As she limped to get ready to try to do a vault, she could barely move. She told an interviewer after the vault that all she could do to keep going was keep her eyes on the coach. Keep her eyes on the coach. He kept, he kept her from focusing on her ankle. This girl was really hurting. She was crying. But she had an, an encourager who believed in her. She had an, a coach who was the encourager who believed in her. And she kept her eyes on the coach. She found strength from his encouragement that she didn't have. She found strength from his encouragement that she didn't have. Even with the limp, she took off running and did her flip on the vault. She had to nail the landing in order to win. She had to try to do this with an ankle that was injured, with her coach's encouragement holding her up. She conquered her impossibility. And how'd she do it? With her coach's encouragement holding her up. She earned a high enough score for the U.S. team to win the gold, all because of her coach's encouragement. Encouragement changes your and my performance. I encourage you, and I pray this for myself every night. I'm guilty. I want to be an encourager, not a discourager. But also, our ultimate coach is Jesus. We can live this Christian life through Jesus, keeping our eyes on the coach. Our ultimate coach is Jesus. We need to keep our eyes on Jesus, keep our eyes on our coach. And under his coaching, under Jesus, he uses us to encourage and be coaches. Not literal coaches like Mike Tomlin and that type of thing and other NFL coaches or whoever or soccer coaches. Maybe those, maybe those two. You might be a, a coach and that's awesome. But we all get to be the coach for your brothers and sisters in Christ and be an encourager. And we need it. We all need it in this Christian life, don't we? We all need it. I need it. We all need it. We can live the Christian life through Jesus, our supreme coach, keeping our eyes on him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this time to declare your word to your people. And I pray, Lord God, that we'd be blessed and encouraged as we leave this place. Lord God, there are sure are some here who don't know you as Lord and Savior, or maybe they've strayed from you. For those, I pray that today would be the day where they rededicate their life to you. Today would be the day where they confess they're a sinner in need of a Savior, believe in you as the one and only Savior, trust in you and commit to you. Confess, believe, believe you died on the cross for their sins and rose again. Trust and commit.
Help us keeping our eyes on Jesus, keeping our eyes on you. And our pain and suffering and weakness and frailties and everything we face. In Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna go straight to the closing song today. I'm trading my sorrows, which is just a beautiful, upbeat song, um, an exciting song to leave with. Uh, The altars are open and we'll have people up here to pray with you. And if we can pray and encourage and support you in anything, don't hesitate to come forward. Amen. Let's all stand as we sing about the joy.